Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Helena Rosenblatt, a professor of history at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Dr. Rosenblatt is the author of a number of books, her most recent being The Lost History of Liberalism, which we'll be talking about today. Helena Rosenblatt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I I thought maybe a place to start would be, well, I guess about as far back as we could start with the history of liberalism, which is ancient Greece and and Rome, which is kind of a a point in time that's always fascinated me. Um, Cicero is kind of one of my personal heroes. But uh, so can you talk a little bit about to start with what it meant to be liberal in, you know, the time of Socrates or, say, Cicero? I, I absolutely love that question because I'd like to for us to hold on to the meaning if we can and not forget it. Certainly in the 19th century, liberals didn't forget it. So the root of the word liberal in Latin means not only freedom, but also generosity. We often hear that it's about freedom and we forget the fact that the word in fact referred to both freedom and generosity. Then there was the word uh, liberalitas, I guess translated today to liberality, and it meant uh, the values befitting a freeborn man. So there was this aspirational ideal um, associated with the word. It was something to live up to. And I think that it's the dynamic uh, interplay between these two, generosity and freedom, that led to the evolution of liberalism over the years and the debates that have been engendered about it. And, and so, I, I mean, given that sort of definition to aspirational and liberality, it, what struck me is how, I guess especially way back then, it was almost something of an aristocratic value, or I, I, I sort of see it as a virtue, I guess. But is that is that the case? I mean, was this something that was expected of everyone to strive for, or was it just something that the upper crust sort of thought about? Yes, um, right. It was a rather elitist concept from the very beginning. I mean, these were ideals accepted, uh, expected of citizens. And in Rome, these were already an elite. They were not slaves. Um, liberality in women throughout history until fairly recently was very problematic. Um, if women were generous, it was generally um, considered generous in a sexual way, which was not um, something that uh, was um, was a good thing. Um, But so it's it it referred to the values and of elite in ancient Rome. You see that in Cicero, for example. And over the time, over time, it continued um, to do so as this elite expanded. So 
Uh, it meant um, it meant uh, to be the, to be liberal was a quality of noblemen, um, mainly uh, no, and certainly not of the poor who were considered to be necessarily self-regarding, even selfish. They were in, they were dependents and incapable of the kind of generous thinking and acting that was expected of a a gentleman or a nobleman. Um, so it gradually expanded from being the value of a citizen to being the value of a Christian, a nobleman, a gentleman, until it could be by the end of the 19th uh, 18th century, sorry, the value uh, of a whole society. Again, an aspirational ideal, hoping that society could be more liberal and expecting it to be more liberal over time. But it's only recently in in the history of liberalism that everyone was thought to be capable of liberality. Now, that capability is in a way tied to education, isn't her thought to be? I mean, I think of, of course, the liberal arts. And could, could you maybe talk a little bit about what the connection is or was seen as between being able to, to be kind of a, a liberal citizen or exercise these virtues and education? Yes. Well, being liberal, again, going back to ancient Rome, was not regarded as something innate. Uh, people weren't instinctively liberal. That's, this value had to be learned. And you could learn it, uh, among other things, by, by, with a liberal arts education. Uh, which would inculcate the values necessary for these leaders of society, this elite. Um, it, liberal arts education was not meant to uh, teach any, give any technical training. It was really, um, the, it were vocational, mechanical, if you want. Uh, liberal arts were differentiated from the mechanical arts, and they were supposed to teach uh, prospective citizens and elites, leaders of society, how to behave, behave, how to speak in a way that convinced people of the the virtues necessary of a citizen, and and generally just how to be generous and devoted to the common good. Yeah, I, I always like that distinction that sometimes made. That, uh between what are called the liberal arts and sometimes the servile arts, and sometimes my, my colleagues in, in the STEM disciplines, I like to I like to mention that to them. Though these days it seems like we've we've largely abandoned, at least to a certain extent, that that focus uh, or at least that emphasis on on the liberal arts. And I think a lot of folks would say much to our much to our detriment in the development of uh, a citizens kind of capable of exercising these virtues. I completely agree with you as a, as a historian. I, I believe very much in, in the teaching of, of the liberal arts, and, and I'm worried for the future that um, they're, in, um, they're under attack, frankly. And it's not that we don't need sciences. Of course we do. But we need a balance. We need um, students to understand the past, the kind of values that have um, been uh, fought for and defended and uh, the importance of this for, for our future and, and for our, our present, frankly. Now, in the book, you write that France invented liberalism. And, uh, of course, when I think of France and liberalism, I think of the French Revolution, which was uh, in incredibly important. And 
I know it's having read the book, I know that the ramifications are so great that it would be essentially impossible to explain them in one answer. But maybe you could kind of sketch out some of the most important things that came out of the French Revolution for the history and development of liberalism. Yes, um, absolutely. And this is one of the exciting discoveries I made uh, while doing the research for this book. The word liberalism was actually coined only in uh, around 1810 to 1812 as a result of the French Revolution in kind of reaction uh, to the French Revolution. Before that, the, of course, the word liberal existed, the word liberality, but not liberalism. And it came to refer to a cluster of concepts um, and ideals such as the rule of law, constitutional, representative government, and a number of rights, among which uh, I would say that freedom of thought, freedom of religion were, uh, the, and freedom of the press were the most important. We place a lot of emphasis these days on um, property rights, and they were included most of the time, but I think um, that the, really the most important at the time were uh, freedom of thought and freedom of religion, which were, of course, interconnected. Now, I, I, um, I, I say that it's important to, to note this so that we can avoid anachronism when we speak about liberalism. The first theorists of liberalism, it turns out, not, you know, not John Locke, who is so often uh, mentioned, uh, although he's an important thinker, I don't want to deny that, but the first theorists of this thing we call liberalism were actually Benjamin Constant and Madame de Stael, um, and those in their circle or, or on their side, if you, if you wish. And they, they were they were very interested in building um, building a just state, if you wish. They were also interested in writing constitution um, and, and, a, and creating a form of government which would work for everyone. Um, now, throughout the 19th century, wherever you look, um, liberalism is associated with the French Revolution. The word liberalism doesn't even appear in American dictionaries uh, encyclopedias until relatively late in the 19th century. The word liberal, when it meant to something political, um, was often spelt with an E at the end, uh, liberal, or rendered in italics to indicate its foreignness. This is true in America and in England. Um, and as late as the late 19th century, in one of the encyclopedias, um, important ones um, on political science, uh, Encyclopedia of Political Science, I think it was called. You have to look in my book to get the exact title. Um, it was actually, there was the, the uh, entry, on, uh, there was an entry on liberalism in this encyclopedia, but it was basically, it was a translation of a French article. So the, the rest of the world was fascinated by France and its successive revolutions, the fact that it couldn't settle down. And liberalism was really uh, always, until late, until very late in history, um, thought of as something French, and therefore something kind of promising, but also something you know dangerous, since it was associated with with revolutions, and I think that's why often it was rendered in italics. Now, even before that, or slightly before the French Revolution, of course, in the United States, we had our own uh, revolution, and. Uh, in the book, you talk about how in the early 19th century, a lot of Europeans actually viewed the United States as perhaps the most liberal country in the world, even though 
you know, we weren't necessarily using that word at that point. But as you point out in the book, the United States wasn't really, or at least entirely, a democratic country. And, you know, it seems to me that we conflate these words. We see liberalism and democracy just naturally going together. But that's not uh, that's not really the case necessarily at all, is it? No, no, not at all. I mean, liberal liberalism um, and democracy have, in fact, had a conflictual relationship throughout history. I mean, democracy is a very, very old uh, concept going out to ancient Greece, going back to ancient Greece. And it's a mistake to conflate liberalism with democracy or to think that they're natural allies, as you say. They're not synonyms. And the early 19th century liberals, the first liberals, did not conflate the, the two terms. I mean, in Greece, for example, democracy had, meant rule by the people or even people power. And some have interpreted this after the fact as, as uh, direct participation by all male citizens. Others have taken it to mean a representative system based on the suffrage of all male citizens. Either way, however, well into the 19th century, the majority of liberals were actually hostile to the idea of democracy. I mean, after all, the French Revolution proved um, to them that the, elect the public was really unprepared for political rights. They were ignorant. They were irrational. They were violent. Um, the most radically democratic phase of the revolution um, during that phase, the rule of law had been suspended. Enemies of the people had been guillotined and rights that liberals held dear had been trampled upon. So, and then, and then by the way, in the 19th century, of course, liberals um, looked on with frustration as demagogues and dictators manipulated the electorate, um, appealing to its lowest instincts and gullibility um, in order to enhance their power. I'm speaking of the Napoleons, the two Napoleons, and, and Bismarck. Again and again, these demagogues uh, ignored uh, and even trampled upon or abolished the rights that liberals had fought so hard for. Uh, freedom, again, of the press, freedom of, of thought, uh, for example, and, and yet they remained popular. So until, you know, very late, liberals were certainly not enthusiastic about democracy. They began to think that it was inevitable, um, but they, they thought very much about how to contain democracy and how to kind of channel it in, in, in safe directions. Directions. You see this in a lot of them. I mean, we see it also in Tocqueville, which has been pointed out. Yeah, but that, in that, many. That, that really right. struck me because I'm I'm uh, reading a lot more Tocqueville because I'm doing a course on democracy in America and how that I, I wasn't aware of of how significant his concerns were, and it really kind of shot throughout the the, the entirety of his work, which which kind of surprised me uh, a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and, and the, the interesting thing as well is that the word democracy wasn't really stable. I mean, I um, at the time were fixed. I mean, I said that it could, it could mean rule by the people or people power, um, but it could also mean a kind of society. And, and scholars have shown how Tocqueville uses the word in many different ways. I mean, I think they've said up to seven or eight ways in democracy in America. So, so it's, it's another complicated um, ideal. 
um, uh, or or concept and his skepticism about political democracy um, actually increased over time. It seems he was he was very worried about it. That's for sure, and thought of ways to contain it again, to channel it um, in 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 various ways. And I'm you know he was thinking about France at the time that he wrote Democracy of America. I mean, a lot of people, particularly Americans, forget that fact. So he's trying to deliver lessons to France about how to contain what was the inevitable march towards democracy. You mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, you mentioned Napoleon and, and populist uh, dictators and movements and that sort of thing. And there was a part in the book where you sort of contrasted that with Lincoln in the United States, a very different kind of, uh, I don't know if call him a populist leader exactly, but uh, it turns out actually, and this is something I had no idea of, how important the American Civil War was, I mean, not just to the liberal cause such as it was in the United States, but really around the world. Why, what was the importance of the Civil War? Well, you know, you, the United States was really seen for a long time as kind of an, ex, um, uh, an experiment in democracy. Democracy in a large country was thought uh, as a very precarious thing, if not impossible, uh, from ancient sources uh, and from thinking about it um, throughout the, the centuries. So many people thought that American democracy was, was bound to fail. When the, when the uh, Civil War broke out, uh, many thought that this was just proof uh, of what they had been saying. Uh, American democracy was not going to survive. Uh, all their predictions were coming true. Um, also, there was a second aspect of America, which was deeply problematic to many liberals, if not all liberals, but uh, not all liberals, but to many liberals. And that was the issue of slavery. And you see this in democracy in America as well, uh, especially I, I've noticed in French liberals, uh, they speak about slavery as being um, uh, a very uh, bad and uh, dangerous thing for America, bound to cause it to fail in the long run. So when Lincoln came along, here was a great leader who saved democracy. I think that's how they looked at him, even though you're right in a sense to call him a bit of a, a bit of a demagogue or even a dictator. They recognized that, which is really interesting for, for that liberals did that. But he was seen as somebody very high minded um, by emancipating the slaves. He showed and, and getting Americans to accept that. Uh, he was high-minded and he was a really moral leader. There you have that concept I, we spoke about in the beginning about the aspirational ideal. He showed to European liberals that a moral and a, therefore a liberal democracy was possible. And this gave them hope about their own their own future. Lincoln was really a model to many people. And I think in a way they were even hoping that that he could become a model for somebody like Napoleon III, who could maybe learn some lessons and and turn his 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 dictatorship into something more similar to Lincoln. I mean, it was kind of a wild idea, <laughs> but but they did um, they to a certain extent hopeful in, in that direction, a dream perhaps um, that they could have a ruler like Lincoln. One phrase that. I haven't used yet, surprisingly, is classical liberalism. And, you know, when, when I think about liberalism 
in the kind of 18th and 19th century context, that's one of the things that comes to mind first that, that and it's sort of, I view it as a focus on largely the market, individual rights, uh, limited government, very limited government. And that certainly was uh, a strand of thought or, or version of liberalism during that period. But that was only kind of one of, uh, I guess, almost a number of strands. It, it was one of the fascinating things I thought about the book was how the the meaning of liberalism was almost in a way battled over between these between these different groups over time. Yes, uh, you're right. The way you um, define or perceive classical liberalism today, it's a term often used uh, by libertarians, for example, to to um, to refer to something uh, exactly like small government uh, deregulation or little regulation, uh, free markets. Um, and I, I think it's really kind of a misnomer, again, a kind of invention that serves a political purpose today. Um, I say this for a couple of reasons. One is that there was no period in history where they really where there was no government regulation, no government intervention, I should say, in the economy. It depends on where you look, you know, for government intervention. How about slavery? How about women? Um, how about helping certain industries uh, in various ways? How about you know, calling on troops to put down strikes and so on and so forth. There, there was government intervention all over the place if you just care to look for it. Secondly, uh, when the term classical liberalism began being used in the late 19th century, I see it as being a kind of reading of uh, somebody like Adam Smith, who's always been important to those who call themselves classical liberals. Um, but they read Adam Smith in, in a certain way that I believe is anachronistic and in, inaccurate. And they're, they're kind of picking out things in Adam Smith that suit their purposes. Those areas, those places where he talks about uh, free markets and the need to um, have very little government intervention. Scholars recently have shown that this is a distortion of Adam Smith's uh, thought. If you look at him in context, he, he never said anything as, as simplistic um, as that. And as you said, there was really two strands of liberalism in, in the 19th century. It started really um, to break into two, if you will. Although there have always been debates, I should say, about economic policy in particular. I mean, liberals have never been of one mind. And so to sort of uh, speak about classical liberalism was a way of differentiating and grouping together a certain uh, certain liberals that came uh, forward in the late 19th century as a, as a result of the problems caused by the Industrial Revolution. The, they were opposed to people who called themselves social liberals or liberal socialists um, uh, in, in certain cases and said that they were more for government intervention to help the poor in this situation. So there were really two streams, if you will, um, that separated as a result of, of um, the problems caused by urbanization and, and industrialization and the appearance um, and uh, of something they called pauperism, this endemic poverty in the cities. Um, yeah, so so it is a, a term that is used for kind of political reasons um, and is somewhat um, a distortion, I think, of history. Yeah, I, 
I totally agree, especially it always bugs me. I, 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 uh, I'm much more of a fan, actually, of Smith's uh, theory of moral sentiments than I am of wealth of nations. But when, when you read that together, both of those, it just seems pretty clear to me that there's a, kind of a pervasive uh, misreading or, or flattening of what, of what Smith had to, had to say, really. Yeah, I you know I was uh, recently at a at a conference and I was listening to a paper given by a, a prominent libertarian. I'm not going to mention his name. Very nice guy, totally misinformed in my opinion. And he was saying that he only he he was you know a fan of of the wealth of nations and had been reading and even I think even teaching it for years. But he only recently came across the theory of moral sentiments. Wow! And realized that it was quite important. Really, I was like. Congratulations! <laughs> Been yeah, reading yeah. the theory of moral sentiments for a very long time, and talking about how it how it fits with the the, um, the wealth of nations and and the fact that Adam Smith was very much a moralist. He taught moral philosophy in Scotland, and you know you just can't read one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. Another thread that runs really throughout the book, uh, and I guess throughout the history of liberalism, is how opposed, especially the Catholic Church, has been. And, and why is it that the Church has been really a, a pretty consistent opponent of, of liberalism over time? Well, here we, we really um, get to a kind of a, a tragedy uh, of the French Revolution, this, this rift that was caused. Some people, you know, think that it was really unnecessary um, and that the revolutionaries made a few serious mistakes. And it's always interesting to think as a historian about circumstances and contingencies. Um, and so, I, I, you know, it wasn't inevitable. I think nothing really is inevitable. Um, and it's certainly not the revolution. And so uh, what happened here was that the state in the early uh, part of the revolution um, took over church property and nationalized it and sold off the property basically to um, to pay off the enormous debt, um, which many people think is one of the causes, if not the cause of the French Revolution. Um, they did this without consulting the Pope, which was kind of crazy. And then they proceeded to reorganize the parishes and the districts in order to rationalize it, uh, quote unquote. Uh, then. Uh, and by doing this, they they also turned priests into like salaried civil servants. All of this without consulting the church hierarchy. And to cap it off, they they also passed the of course the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, which um, decreed freedom of religion. Now all of this was anathema to the Pope um, Pius VI, who denounced um, it vehemently. Um, and so the rift was caused here, a, a major rift was caused already uh, during this earlier period of the French Revolution. But then then came the terror, what um, we call the derailment of the revolution and uh, and the um, associated uh, brutal dechristianization campaign when priests were forced to resign. They were in prison. They were killed. Many had to go into exile. Buildings were destroyed and vandalized. And then, you know, there was there were these um, attempts to eradicate the Catholic Church altogether. They many revolutionaries saw the Catholic Church as their main enemy because of its alliance for hundreds of years with the absolute monarchy and its control over education. 
um, and, and such things. So, and you, you so this, um, this basically triggered the, this um, hostility, this mutual hostility between the revolution and the Catholic Church. Now, you don't want to uh, paint this, this, um, this rift with um, too broad a brush. I mean, not all Catholics were against, you know, liberal principles of sure. government. Uh, there were uh, important thinkers. I'm thinking of Lord Acton, for example. Many in America for thought that the Catholic Church and and um, and uh, the revol- and revolutionary principles were absolutely reconcilable. I mean, we talked about Tocqueville. Tocqueville definitely speaks about a Catholic Church in in America existing very happily with um, under the conditions of church-state separation. And many argued that this might even be a good thing for the Catholic Church to be sort of divorced from ap- the, the state, especially in its absolute uh, manifestations. Um, so, but, but, the, the, uh, but they were consistent, such people were consistently denounced and threatened with excommunication by the popes, who insisted that liberalism was a, was a godless philosophy uh, bound to lead to chaos and anarchy, and uh, not to mention atheism. Uh, even you know Pope Pius the Twelfth, um, as late as 1945, denounced liberalism in the most um, vehement of terms as something that was about banishing God from the world. Uh, so, so. Um, they, the church accepted the notion of liberal democracy very late. And one has to wonder if it sort of got off on the wrong track um, with the French Revolution uh, and, and wonder about what might have been. You know, it, it seems to me, though, I mean, of course, institutions evolve and change over time, and, and the Catholic Church is, is no different. But if you compare, say, some of the things that Pius Twelfth had to say with uh, especially Pope Francis today, it feels like, and maybe this is just uh, sort of uh, the Pope isn't necessarily representative of the church, which is a weird thing to say, I know. But, but, but do you get the sense that the modern Catholic Church, especially under Pope Francis, is not really so much uh, being, uh, an opponent of, uh, of liberalism these days? Um, well, first of all, you're absolutely right to call attention to the, the fact that the, the Pope doesn't um, Speak for all Catholics. Actually, um, there has been dis- debates uh, within the Church, uh, not only over liberalism but over other things uh, as well, as we all know. Um, now, Pope Francis, uh, I'm not an expert, and I haven't re- really um, researched his use of the word liberalism. If he talks about it directly, you know that my in my book I take that very seriously. Um, really. Uh, following, tracking the use of the words liberal and liberalism. Uh, And I'm not sure, in all of that he has said, he probably has used the word. I believe that he is accepting of liberal democracy. But again, you know, how you define liberalism is at issue here. Um, Catholic historians um, often use the word liberalism to mean like extreme individualism, an individualistic society based on the notion that, you know, human beings are, and this is, of course, they disagree with, human beings are are self-interested, are cut off from their communities, um, that, and from religion, that that it's sort of a synonym of, of selfishness, um, so that there's something profoundly wrong with 
with more the moral vision and religious vision of liberalism. So they tend to use, I mean, you'll see that um, in Patrick Deneen's recent book, um, really um, attacks or denounces the liberalism, but he uses that definition throughout the book, if I read it correctly, and I, and I think I, I do. So, so liberalism, I, I, we have to pay attention to how the word is used and the definition that's used. I doubt very much that Patrick Deneen is um, is uh, against liberal democracy. It's it's this kind of extreme form of individualism that he um, thinks is is um, a terrible thing. Yeah, that was actually one of the uh, one of the reasons I, I was so uh, interested in talking to you because I had an opportunity to talk to him on the show a, a while ago, and I was fascinated by his by his conception of liberalism and his argument. and And uh, I think it's great to be able to talk to you and put that term into this broader historical context, which I think is extremely extremely helpful. Uh, I, I want to get back a little bit to. Uh, modern American liberalism. And when I think of, you know, I talked about classical liberalism. And when I think about liberalism kind of as it exists today, at least as Americans tend to see the term, to me, it kind of starts in the early 20th century with, you know, you see the progressive Republicans, the Wilsonian Democrats, the whole progressive movement, and that kind of morphs into the liberalism of FDR in the 1930s. And to me, what connects all of this is something you mentioned actually in relation a little bit to Lincoln is that kind of moralism, that, that strong moralism and kind of a big government type of focus. Is that, is that sort of how you see the, the genesis of or the kind of defining characteristics of modern American liberalism? Well, I think a certain amount of moralism has always been there. It's been kind of a, a core of, of liberal liberal thinking. So it's terribly unfair when I think and wrong, historically incorrect, to call, you know, liberalism this sort of selfish, um, simply rights-oriented um, ideology, if, if, if you will. And the word big government, of course, you know, now has become kind of a colloquialism, but I think it, there's something pejorative mm -hmm. built it. I mean, I don't think Democrats today would say, oh, we're for big government. And I don't really think that would describe uh, what they stand for. Uh, you know, uh, something else I go into my book, uh, into in my book, is the fact that the word liberalism uh, in colloquial parlance, again, in America means big government, while in Europe and large parts of the world, it means small government. I was just in Europe giving some lectures um, and uh, the liberal parties there, the think tanks, all are kind of confused and surprised and, and are, are fascinated by how that came to happen, which I also I also describe. Um, but get, getting back to FDR and the New Deal, um, which you asked me about, um, I think to a large extent, um, and others are, are better experts, of course, so there's a huge scholarship on FDR and the New Deal, but I, the way I see it was also an attempt to you know, save capitalism and markets from excesses, to step in to help the poor when the markets were not working, not to abolish you know, markets or create a, a big government, um, but give people you know, the chance to be free and to participate in markets in a fair way. Uh, and this has been the case since the mid-19th century. The fact that, therefore, a lot of statism or the nanny state is what liberal 
the enemies of liberals, their adversaries have said about them. It's not what they've said about they've said about themselves. Right. And and, and then we had, of course, uh, World War Two and, and the Cold War. And we look at those totalitarian governments and it seemed like it gave critics of liberalism, or at least critics of liberalism kind of took that as ammunition, basically saying, well, this sort of communitarian vision with a, with, with a large, powerful central government, this is a, you know, a gateway to this sort of totalitarianism. You know, the phrase godless communism comes into play, that sort of thing. I mean, do you think that there was, a, it's a, you know, maybe it's a bit of a slippery slope argument, maybe it's a lot of a slippery slope argument, but do you think that those critics had at least something of a point or were they just sort of off base, would you say? Um, well, I think, you know, blaming um, totalitarianism on liberalism, which some people have done and, and continue to do, um, is, is, you know, terribly unfair and incorrect. I mean, uh, totalitarianism really stood for the, you know, was the absence of the rights that liberals had held so dear, the rule of law, procedures, uh, freedoms of the press, and, and all of that. So um, I do, and, but, but it's a long tradition to, to say this about liberals. And I do, I think it does come from a lot, at least from the Catholic Church, who said that by banishing God, uh, you it led to a huge state that power was translated to the state, which was extremely dangerous. In a way, those who speak of that today or did um, in, in uh, during between the world wars and after during the Cold War, who who blamed uh, totalitarianism on liberalism were like secularizing an old old argument um, that. Um, you know, and it led to a kind of defensiveness among liberals where they needed to prove this is with the rise of fascism and Nazism and then communism. They needed to prove that they were not statists, that they were not certainly into planning, you know, state planning. And so they I, I, I as I argue in my book, this is when there was this turn to rights um, where they started to speak of individual rights and property rights to an to a, an unprecedented extent they needed to prove that they were not you know they weren't reds or, or they weren't proto totalitarian and they kind of dropped uh, at least you know we're talking also about language about how they presented themselves how what they said liberalism was all about and i see a lot of the the moral content kind of actually dropping out or redefined as, you know, giving rights to people is what's morally correct. I don't disagree with that, by the way. Um, uh, I, I do think it's a generous and important thing that liberals um, have been involved with and continue to be. But there is this other aspect that seemed to have dropped out of the discussion, um, which is this duties of citizenship devotion to the common good. And I think that this whole period then uh, led to a kind of downgrading of the sorts of goals that these social liberals that we talked about before um, aspired to and wanted to um, institute and, and promote. You know, so in the, yeah, sorry. I, say, I, I noticed a lot of that in, in looking at, say, how older older generation liberals like say FDR or someone talked in terms of these sort of 
common good. There was, it seemed to me there was much more of a focus on common good sort of things as opposed to a lot of modern liberals where it's almost not all about rights, but certainly a lot more about individual rights and identity and that sort of thing. And it seems to me what you're arguing is that is that there's a balance that perhaps has been lost to a certain extent. Is that is that right? Yeah, that that's exactly um, what, what I think, and it's ultimately divisive. I think, um, and I don't see why the two couldn't coexist in a sense. We need to maybe figure out a way to redefine liberalism, and then and then advocate it openly. I think it's something that you know. For example, people very shy away from. From the word patriotism, and I'm not sure if that isn't even a mistake. I mean, patriotism is not the same thing as nationalism. You know, um, it's not the same thing as xenophobia. Um, it can be a very good thing if you, when you define it and explain it in a good, you know, in a way. There's no way, reason to shy away from, from you know, loving the flag and what it stands for. In my opinion, unfortunately, you know, weirdly, this is sort of controversial <laughs> to say. And uh, you know, I, I. I I, a liberal arts education, you know, again, is very important. Um, let's let's kind of um, kindle a, a pride in in American in what liberals have done for the world and for themselves now and for 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 America. Um, this is, not, as you know, since you've read my book so carefully, and I appreciate that. I don't, you know. Uh, pretend that liberalism has all been good, that, you know, there isn't a darker side to liberalism as well, that we need to, that we need to recognize and denounce and fight against when it resurfaces. But all in all, you know, so many good things have come from liberals. And, you know, and, and I think we need to possibly stress it a little bit more. Right. It, it, you know, it seems to me that I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember the, the fall of the Soviet Union and that that kind of brief moment where, as, as Fukuyama argued, that this was going to be, you know, the end of history and liberalism had won, essentially, the battle of ideas. And of course, now it seems pretty clear that that was, uh, uh, let's say, more than a little bit overly optimistic. And we see all sorts of, I think, challenges to liberalism that have arisen, uh, not just, you know, I mean, especially I would argue even in the last few years. And so I was wondering, what, what would you say are some of the main uh, challenges or, or threats to liberalism uh, now? And how maybe could we uh, meet them, address them? What do you think? Um, this is the, the million dollar question. Uh, and I'm hesitant to to give um, you know a, a, a advice about the future or policies, but I mean obviously populism is um, is 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 a worrying phenomenon. It seems to be here to stay um, manipulated and fanned by demagogues and dictators. Um, it's unclear that we're able to have found the ways to combat this. Um, and of course it's interrelated, um, caused or um, again, intensified by the great polarization of wealth, um, not only in individual countries like the United States, but across the world. I mean, there's, there's too much money in politics. I think everybody agrees. Um, this new media, um, 
internet, mm, social media, cable news, talk radio. Uh, you yeah. know, where, where start? And, and, you know, there's a certain, I worry about a certain uh, despondence, uh, even a turning away maybe from political participation by, by the young. Kind of, again, we go back to, you know, you can't really blame them, but a, a really a pursuit of, of profession, of vocational training to go get a job. I think more than ever before, uh, college students uh, seem to be uh, concerned with that rather than with, frankly, saving saving democracy. And this could be very much um, partly a result of the failure of education. Now, and I'm forgetting the big, big, the big uh, problem, which is, of course, immigration. Um, who gets to decide who's a citizen, who is a citizen, and who is not? I mean, this is a great challenge that we're we're confronting. Yeah. Uh, have I have I mentioned? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 then there's a lot that you know. To me, I guess one thing, and maybe it's because of the the business I'm in. I mean, I'm, I'm a college professor, and so to me, that that focus on education, you know, how it seems like. Even the liberal arts now are trying to defend themselves on the grounds of kind of career advancement and that sort of thing. And and I've read a, I'm sure not nearly as much as you of the ancient authors, but that focus on if you if you want to have a democracy, you have to have virtuous citizens, and that kind of training and education in virtue seems to be something that's kind of gone by the boards in a lot of ways. And to me, that kind of gets at almost the root of a, a lot of these other problems. I don't know. I no, I, I completely agree with you. I find it uh, ironic and, and kind of sad that um, when I read that, you know, liberal arts are defended by saying, oh, it's, it, you know, there's proof that uh, uh, people with liberal arts degrees end up earning more money <laughs> than those without. You know, what kind of argument is that? This is what I mean. Uh, well, yeah, I suppose that's a very good thing. But is that really what we, you know, how we defend the liberal arts? Surely we can come up with uh, something more important along the lines you just you just described and that go back so many centuries. So, yes, please, let's save the liberal arts. But as as a conduit to to good citizenship. Well, on that note of save the liberal arts, which we both heartily agree on, I think we'll we'll close. Helena Rosenblatt. I, Thank you so much. I, I loved your book, and it was great having the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. I enjoyed it tremendously, too. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week. And supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth really is the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you're listening to on also really helps. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. 
Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.